I've always thought about the absurdity of some seasoned detective going to a crime scene, picking up a finger full of soil, rubbing it between their fingers and smelling it and saying, The perpetrator must have been here. But it turns out that soil actually has a lot of information in it, and it can even tell us what has been there in the past. If by any chance you happen to be looking for one specific type of snake on one specific mountain, Michael is going to be the guy pinching the soil and smelling it. But if you don't believe me, listen to Michael say it himself. I mean, it is basically CSI for wildlife. Um, My boss actually loves to say those words. Ah, well, there there you go. There's the tagline of the episode, everyone. Speaking of episodes and taglines, my name is Louis Colavertolo, and I am a student at the University of Guelph trying my absolute best over here to get a PhD in the food science department. And in my free time, aka when I actually should be working, I like to have conversations with other graduate students about what they research and why anyone should care that they research what they research. So today we are talking with Michael Ellison, who, as you heard, is a crime scene detective of the wildlife. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but for now, suspend your disbelief and listen up. Speaking of suspending your disbelief, keep in mind that we are both graduate students. We don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Michael. How are you doing today? Wonderful, Louie. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good over here. I can't complain, although I could find a way if I wanted to. Uh, what could you could you do us all a favor? Could you tell us what your educational history is? Okay. Well, as a favor, my history, education-wise, starts with biology and microbiology at University of Victoria uh, that I graduated in 2017 and then worked for three years uh, as research assistant and a lab manager in the bio chemistry department at UVic for Dr. Karen Helbing. And they said, she said, hey, why don't you do a master's or a PhD? And so uh, I'm just starting my second year of that and seeing where it goes. Was she like upset that she had to pay you a full salary and was like, hey, you want to do this work? Want me to like severely drop your salary? It's a real (laughs) clever trick they pull. And you believed her. Yeah. And you yeah, you, you signed up for this. I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> but now I get paid less. <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful. Um, I, I, I uh, don't have to do the admin stuff of lab manager anymore, which um, I really appreciate. Uh, so, all right. You've been doing this for a bunch of years. What, what in the world are you actually doing? Um, my primary work is with environmental DNA, which we call eDNA. Um, that is uh, finding creatures based on their DNA traces in nature. As we know, DNA is unique to every creature, and the farther apart creatures are phylogenetically, that's uh, uh, how distantly related they are, the more differences they'll have in their DNA. So we can use commonalities in DNA to say, okay, this taxa, this uh, group of species, is defined by this chunk of DNA. And we can go into nature and say, grab a scoop of water or a scoop of soil and extract all the DNA from that and test it for our specific chunk of DNA. And using that method, we can detect um, a a species or a group of species uh, without having to see them. Okay, so we have this eDNA environmental DNA. Let, let's back up. Let's backpedal just a little bit. DNA. 
We hear this acronym so much. Would you do me a favor and define it? Yes. Very sloppily, DNA is a giant, and I mean giant by, by uh, complexity, book of all the information your body needs to make you. All right, so my DNA is not your DNA. No. And in fact, even uh, identical twins would have differences in their DNA. Um, so basically, DNA is so dang long and so variable that no creatures will ever have the same DNA. It's made of four different bases. So basically, it's, it's, it's a very simply assembled code that can make extremely complex things with high efficiency. Would you say that it's like writing a book using an alphabet, but the alphabet only has four letters? That's correct. But that, that I feel like that doesn't highlight how complex this kind of thing is. Yeah, well, one of the problems is it's not just those four letters. There's also modifications on mm. top of the code that are called epigenetics. Oh. But all you need to know is, is there's several layers on top of just that DNA code. And one part of the DNA code may enact changes on another part of the DNA code. So, all right, we got this long book, really long book. We're talking like Moby Dick length book. We're talking, you know, Les Miserables length book. <laughs> unabridged. Like unabridged, 1,200 pages <laughs> of, of the French Revolution. It's long. So, so we got these really, really, really long books. And you are trying to find what the similarities between these books are in nature? Right. Um, the DNA that most people think of when you think of DNA is nuclear DNA. That's the DNA that, uh, that it, it makes most of your proteins that uh, work inside your cell. Uh, there's another loop of DNA called mitochondrial DNA. So we have mitochondria that you've probably heard described as the powerhouse of the cell. Um, they happen to have DNA that is altered over time at such a rate that makes it very good for creating eDNA assays. That means that we can differentiate species using this mitochondrial DNA without too much difference between individual creatures of the same species. So it just makes it a very nice uh, target. Okay, so let me bring this back to something you said earlier, and I, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but... You said with twins, identical twins, their their DNA, which I'm assuming we were talking about nuclear DNA at the point, would be different. Mm -hmm. And now with the mitochondrial DNA, it probably is still different between the two, but would you say it's more similar? Very much so. Yeah. And and I mean when I say uh, when I say different, you know, like there's there's regions of DNA that are so important that they get changed very little. You don't want to change something that's super important to your survival. You want to kind of block it off from, from getting altered. With the mitochondria, there's parts that will get changed a lot more than other parts. So it's the same with, you know, mitochondrial, same with nuclear DNA. Between those two twins, there might be a base substitution, what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism, or an SNP. That is SNP. SNPs, exactly. So when we do SNPs or we do microsatellite analysis, we are looking at very small differences between genes uh, that can tell us a much smaller resolution, or I should say much higher resolution would be the right way of saying that, changes. So 
So you could tell the difference between two different groups of species. Maybe, maybe not even between two twins. They might still be too similar, uh, but it really depends on where you're looking in the genome. Okay, so these single nucleotide polymorphisms, the nucleotide is one of those letters in this alphabet that we described. Yes, in fact, it's one of the letters in uh, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acids. So nucleotide is the nucleic. Um, That's part of the DNA molecules. All right, so then one of these polymorphisms means that there's some small amount of change. Yes, yeah. So even right now, there's parts of your DNA that's slowly changing, um, changing oh, okay. back and getting repaired and getting altered. And you go in the sun and the UV will start damaging it. And then you have different molecules, different proteins that are, that are going back and repairing it according to... Uh, DNA templates, and so it's it's in constant flux. Okay, okay, okay. So you are looking at this DNA. You're looking at the mitochondrial DNA, the powerhouse of the cell DNA, and you are just grabbing, Just you just go around and you just put dirt in a jar. Is that what you're doing? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with, with dirt especially, with, uh, I should say, soil, <laughs> ah, okay. All right. I understand. I, I apologize. People get upset about that. Soil scientists. Yes, they do. Not the not the first time that like someone's been like, it's soil. I, I worked in plant pathology in Saskatchewan. I tell you, they don't have a lot in Saskatchewan. They've got the sky. They've got dirt. They've got like a couple trees. So they care about each That's... one of those things. You want to say the right words. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, say, say we want to find a snake. Uh, there's a endangered snake called the sharp-tailed snake that's in British Columbia uh, that is very specific in where it lives. So if I were to go into the forest and grab a scoop of soil, it's like no chance that I would find that DNA from that snake, like no chance. But if I know about that species, if I know that the sharp-tailed snakes likes to live on the south-facing slope of a Garrick Oak meadow, and it likes to be under a specific type of uh, cover object, like like a rock or a, a piece of driftwood, or in what the biologists do to uh, sample them is put down roofing shingles because they collect heat very well. So the snakes are burrowing snakes, and so you'll never just find them really crawling along the ground. They'll be under stuff. So if I know that that they'll be in those conditions, then I can go to specifically where I think they'll be, grab soil from there or swab the the roofing shingle or swab the uh, uh, rocks, and then I extract DNA from those samples. Then I increase my chance of finding that snake. And it's the same that goes with, uh, with amphibians and with fish. If you know about their life history, then you're increasing the chance that you'll find their DNA. So you say that you're finding this DNA. You're not actually grabbing these snakes and taking their blood or something like that. It's a, a somewhat akin, not not exactly, but it's somewhat akin to like the crime scene, leaving hair behind. Hair has your DNA in it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is basically CSI for wildlife. Um, Ooh, my boss actually okay. loves to say those words. <laughs> ah, well, there, there you go. There's the tagline of the episode, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so in order to create these assays, we call them, these tests for specific creatures, 
we we need to do a lot of um, careful validation. We need to make sure that it's actually detecting that species and that it's specifically detecting that species. So uh, first we need actual, like you said, blood samples um, or or cloacal swabs work really well. Um, Where's the cloacal? Oh, you don't want to know, man. Oh, I don't. Oh, okay. All right. All right. You know what? Don't answer it. If you want to, if you are listening and you want to know, just that is a question for Google. Put yourself in incognito mode first. It it is. It is in the um, location of the fecal matter. Um, Understood. I'm unfamiliar with radial language, so I got to be careful there. (laughs) Um, So yeah. So you you have to test it against you know, many different specimen of your target, and you have to test it against specimen from all the con- possible confounding species, including, you know, like all the all the invasive and native, uh, um, say in this case, if we're, if we're talking about the snake again, you need to be looking at, you know, um, Podarchus muralis, the, the uh, European wall lizard, you need to be looking at uh, a bunch of different snakes that live near around the area and of course you need to look at human dna make sure it doesn't amplify human dna or else you're hooped and dog dna because a lot of the biologists have dogs you know cats are in nature a lot you need to make sure it doesn't amplify cat dna very unlikely that a test that is specifically designed for uh, snake dna is going to amplify human because they're so far apart but you have to be careful. You have to be completely sure before you start going into nature and using this test. So you, before you go into nature, you know what you're looking for. You have the book of the snake. Yeah, and if you don't, then you need to make the book of the snake. Okay, all right. And that is from swabbing disgusting areas on a snake. Yes, okay. yes. It's a truly disgusting job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knew there was a future in snake swabbing? <laughs> Uh, so you, you have this book and then you're going to go out into the environment and you're going to collect samples and you want to check if that book is in the library of the wildlife under this rock. Are we going to find the same book? That's a nice way of putting it. Yes. So you then you grab the soil. See, I use the right word. You grab the soil and you are going to bring it back to your lab and, you are going to then try to amplify the soil. What do you? That's what, correct. What do you, what, why? What do we? Why are we amplifying soil? Yeah. There's so much of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, so okay. So say say we've got half a liter of soil. We're going to mix that into water, like a bunch of water. Well, let's say let's say 500 milliliters of soil. We'll put it into a liter, a liter and a half of water. Shake the dickens out of it. Let it settle. Filter it. So we're concentrating any DNA that's that's been uh, perturbed, filter it, and then we've got this messy looking filter. Now we're gonna use that filter to uh, extract all the DNA from that. So uh, what we end up with after all these steps is about 150 microliters, which is a very small amount of liquid that is hopefully purified DNA. There's gonna be a bunch of other stuff in it, uh, especially if it's soil. So we need to probably purify even further. But with just that DNA, we can start um, replicating uh, our specific strand if it's in there. So if we've designed our assay well, we can amplify that DNA using the tools of qPCR, which is a quantitative polymerase chain reaction, which is 90% of my job. We are going to 
see if if we have that small segment of DNA present in our source DNA. So this PCR thing, we might have heard about that in the wake of recent events. Mm -hmm. People talk about getting a PCR test Mm -hmm. uh, to determine if they might have contracted COVID. Um, so that this PCR, you're, you're doing a version of PCR on soil. And if I'm to understand correctly, you're just taking some of this DNA that you found in the soil and you're just creating a whole bunch of copies of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You are, you're filling a library with these books. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, we do 50 cycles of qPCR. And so is that a lot? I feel like it's, that's a lot. it's pushing the that's, limits. Yeah. Because what we're doing it's, is pushing. It's excessive. Yeah. So, I mean, most people would cap it at 40 cycles. Um, so, okay. so uh, each time we run this qPCR, we are doubling how much DNA we have. So basically we're doubling and doubling and doubling. And if you double something 50 times, well, you end up with a heck of a lot. That's a lot, right? So it's like two, then four, then eight, 16, 32. 64. How far can I keep going? 120. Very curious how far you're going to go. <laughs> uh, 256. That's okay, the highest number that anybody knows. So <laughs> I don't even know it. <laughs> so uh, I, you are replicating, replicating, replicating. You do in 50 cycles. That's an intense amount of cycles. And then you, uh, congratulations, you have a whole bunch of DNA. Okay, now what? Now we... Uh, we all drink champagne for a week. <laughs> okay, congratulations. Uh, and so we can say that uh, not accounting for all the other variables that we have to account for, we could theoretically say that we started with this many copies of DNA in our source sample. In our 500 milliliters of soil? Exactly, yeah. We could trace that okay. back uh, when, when we're looking for fish, say. And so uh, we are a lot closer to reliably... Uh, estimating abundance in some creatures like that. So then do you happen to know where the trickiest or the most uh, challenges are? Is it a, is soil uh, hard? Is it rocks that are harder? Like what do you know from experience? Um, I would say that soil is the farthest off from abundance estimations. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're just like saying like my job's the hardest compared to everyone (laughs) else. Well, actually, um, my, my thesis itself is actually uh, in marine environments, uh, testing for ooligan, which are anadromous smelt. That's a small fish that's returned to freshwater and go to the sea every year. And they are actually, uh, we've, we've already got very great data uh, for, for correlating the abundance there, sorry, I should say the biomass of fish with uh, how much fish biomass is uh is measured by conventional means that's uh you know netting trapping electrofishing etc so so uh, if we can correlate our edna assay with with conventional means then we put a lot more trust in it okay all right so 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 let me just branch off of this for a second ultimately what you're saying in this situation is that your edna your qpcr methods your heating your velcro stip all this all the stuff that you talked about, you're comparing those numbers to people who like catch the fish in order to determine how many fish are in a certain area. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if we find very tight correlation over many different sampling efforts, 
then we can start to just take eDNA. Now, eDNA is not the silver bullet. It does not replace traditional means. Traditional means uh, do things that eDNA cannot. But um, there are some cases where eDNA would be sufficient. Um, there are cases when, when having both approaches makes a super strong case. Um, and, and you know, if you have the funding for that, that's wonderful. Sometimes you just have the funding for one and getting, you know, sending somebody out into a remote region to grab a scoop of water is way easier than somebody out sending it to a, a remote region to sit there for three days and look for a creature to find it. And uh, it's a lot less invasive as well. You don't have to catch them, you don't have to disturb them. So basically it's a cost benefit analysis in which, you know, depending on, on what you are looking for and what you want to achieve, uh, eDNA might be uh, a much more appropriate tool for you. Yeah, sounds like it could potentially make some pretty difficult tasks a lot easier. Uh, in some cases, a little bit less expensive. And uh, in other cases, might even provide a little bit more information than traditional methods. That's completely true. I should also point out that what I call eDNA is targeted eDNA. Uh, I'm going to add a bit more complexity just, just so I don't uh, leave people out that that deserve uh, some attention. Uh, there's also uh, metabarcoding and uh, met metagenomic approaches. This means that instead of asking, is this creature here, like what I do, we can ask what creatures are here. But you can take a scoop of water and using what we call universal primers, tags that are, are much less specific to a single creature, you can amplify all the DNA from a, uh, say, say you want it's all fish. You can ask what fish are here. You amplify all fish DNA, and then you sequence all those strands that you get, and you can compare that to what uh, DNA information is available on our databases. And you can say, well, in this stretch of water, we found all this different types of DNA. Um, and so it's more expensive. It's not as uh, sensitive. Uh, there's, you know, a lot more challenges as far as doing things like abundance estimates and stuff like that. But super useful question to be able to ask. All right. So the the difference, and I I, I kind of hate, but I love the fact that I keep going back to this book reference. Mm -hmm. The difference between this is you are going to the library and you know what book you're you want, and you're just gonna browse those shelves until you find totally. it. Totally. Whereas the other method is more of a window shopping kind of situation. <laughs> you go in and, and you're thinking like, well, I don't know what they got, but let's see what they got. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like asking for a specific title by an author versus asking uh, what titles are available from this author. So you're all about targeting. Mm -hmm. Big fan of it. You know exactly what you're looking for and you want to see if it is present. Um, and I'm going to say this in the nicest way possible. What, 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 why are you doing this? What? <laughs> like, what, what, what are you, what are you, what are you doing this for? Like, oh, okay, man. great. You found out that there's some snakes on a mountain on the south side of a mountain under a rock. Like, congratulations, Michael. Why are we doing this? Oh, you're sending me into the dark tunnel again. Uh, oh no. <laughs> okay. So ecology is for the 
preservation of biodiversity and you say great biodiversity is awesome sounds good why do we want biodiversity okay so we want biodiversity because then we have healthy ecosystems okay healthy ecosystem that's awesome we love to walk in a nice forest why do we want that okay well healthy ecosystems are important to having clean water they're important to having i mean nutrient nutrition environments it depends on on stability of our ecosystems of our environmental cycles and when we start to lose some organisms like even like one organism i mean you know we especially think of bioindicators and, and apex predators but like we don't know which ones those are necessarily it can, it can be some worm that you think is super unimportant but not having that suddenly you you are losing your stability of of your environment and suddenly you have a loss of clean drinking water. I like to think that I'm I'm trying to preserve these creatures because I love the biodiversity and I love I love nature, uh, and that's true. But we would not be able to survive in a world without these creatures and without environmental stability. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is it all comes back to survival of the human race. And if you're going to ask me why I care about that, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> okay. My my. I don't want to like send you into uh, a you know a mental health crisis. Yeah, and don't worry, I was probably there already. <laughs> no, I, I think um, yeah, I think the answer to that is probably it comes back to my DNA. It's trying to keep me alive. Uh, so I guess I'm saving sharp-tailed snakes and ulican uh, and all the other creatures. I'm trying to save them to keep us alive because I I like it so far. All right, you like <laughs> if that's not a motivation, I don't know what is. You like living, therefore you are going to do what you can to make sure that living is a thing that still has. If if you could describe it in in few words, not few words, use as many words as you like. Oh. What does the direct what's the direct result of you determining if this snake is here or not do? for biodiversity you basically say snake here snake not here why does that play into this concept so what targeted edna is really good at it's good at a number of things uh one of the things it's very good at to use the case of the sharp-tailed snake is detecting bioindicator species so these are species that have fragile life histories. That means that if we disrupt their habitat, they will be the first to go. So if we test for these species and they're not there, and they're usually there, then we have a first indicator that this ecosystem is in trouble oh, and needs protecting. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see. So these are the warning signs that we need to do something. We need to do something fast. Totally. So you are doing the work that potentially provides the numbers that says, hey, this area is in trouble. We need to make changes. Otherwise, we are going to be in serious trouble later. That's correct. Okay. Well, that that's beautiful. Thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. And I imagine that the snakes like the company too. So I, I don't speak for the snakes. I don't speak for the snakes. But I think that they appreciate it, too. Not the Slorax. You do not speak for the snakes. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you want to get off your chest before we uh, close up today? Learn. Learn. Learn about it. 
don't, you know, there's so many messages out. Learning can be extremely joyful. It can be amazing and it doesn't just benefit you. It's not about you learning, even though that's a wonderful thing. The more you put yourself out to knowledge and, and try to acquire the tools that will allow you to assess whether something is actually true or not, the more resilient you will be against all the many, many messages that are out there. Just, just give it a shot, you know, set aside some time occasionally to try and to try and read into the literature behind stuff that you've heard. And, um, I care for you and I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job and you know, just keep going. That's beautiful. That's I'm, I'm going to start crying now. Here we go. Waterworks. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for all of your time today. It was a pleasure talking with you about snakes and their naughty parts. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Louie. If I could have, I promise I would be playing the CSI outro music, but we do not have the kind of money to license that sort of material. You might have forgotten that this is public radio. Nonetheless, Michael Ellison is basically the CSI detective of the wildlife for that one specific snake on that one specific mountain. And speaking of talking about specifics, it is time for us to do a quick little fact check because we don't say everything right every single time. So it is always our job to look through the episode after it's done recording and point out some of the things that could be clarified just a little bit. At the fairly early parts of the episode, I talked about identical twins having very similar nuclear DNA, but different mitochondrial DNA. And I went on to conjecture that the mitochondrial DNA of twins would be more different than the nuclear DNA of identical twins. Michael agreed with this, but after listening to the episode, he says one of a scientist's favorite things to say, well, it depends. He claims that sometimes there are parts in nuclear DNA that are highly prone to change, more so than even mitochondrial DNA. But for the most part, what we said was pretty correct. And the second piece that we need to correct is that Michael said he was doing 50 cycles of qPCR. That's the thing where they amplify the DNA. He said that uh, most people would stop around 40 cycles, and that is true because that pushes the sensitivity of the equipment. They do 50 cycles because they're cool people. However, in most applications, all you'd really want is 40 cycles. So, once again, it depends. And that concludes our fact check for this episode, and that concludes this episode for this episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.